Good morning and welcome to this historic institute, which has been positioned as a way for all of you to engage in hard questions, difficult questions on inclusion in investment and innovation. And as world leaders gather from around the world at the UN General Assembly's 73rd session in New York, we are honored and thrilled to convene a group of extraordinary leaders and innovators at Penn Law in the margins of the UN General Assembly to ask those hard questions on inclusion in innovation and in investment. And this program is organized around three major hard questions. One being, and Mr. Craig Newmark will answer the first, how can men use their male privilege to advance women's leadership? And second, Caroline Edgar of BNY Mellon will ask the hard question on what is emotional tax for women of color in entrepreneurship and in business? And thirdly, Dr. Geetanjali Swami will ask the difficult question of in an industry where venture capital amounts to over $4.6 trillion, how can women-only funds that engage a little over $10 million advance gender equality? So those are some of the difficult questions that are yet to be asked. And we hope that in the margins of the UN General Assembly, we can engage in those hard questions. Of the seven themes of the UN General Assembly, two major themes are salient to this institute. And the first theme is of innovative thinking about the future of jobs in the world. And second, promoting gender equality. So this institute really builds confluence around those two questions. Gender equality in innovative thinking around the future of work and the future of jobs. So, as we all know, the statistics and the data remain dire. There is a broadening and ever-widening gender gap in startup funding. $1.9 billion of the $85 billion invested by VCs go to women, women-only teams. Even though things seem to be changing for women, in the startup and venture capital world. And just last year, as we know, a handful of uh, women came forward to share their stories of facing sexual harassment and discrimination. A number of the industry's captains of industry lost their jobs. We know that the Me Too movement has altered some aspects of the VC landscape but yet it hasn't really translated into more dollars for female founders. And there is a remarkable link between more dollars for female founders as well as female leadership in the venture capital industry and sex discrimination and sexual harassment. The Ilan Power case really pulled the scab off of the dramatic imbalance of the power imbalance, which continues to create conditions for abuse. And more and more women are pushing for change. So that is why, against that backdrop of what I think really creates this inequality, not just in entrepreneurship and in business or in the STEM field, but across the world, because entrepreneurship and businesses, especially the leadership, have a major role to play in public leadership. And that is why I'm thrilled to have with us someone who's led in the private sector, but whose voice continues to shape public leadership and public policy. Craig Newmark is one of those leaders who not only do I revere, but who is somebody whose modeling, role modeling, and mentoring I have enjoyed over, the f over, a s over a period of several years. 
Craig and I, in 2012, wrote an op-ed article which, which was a, really a clarion call to action for more men, for more male leaders to engage with women in advancing women's leadership and calling on men to be champions of change for women. And one thing that really struck me about Craig's really, really simple ethos was that this was all about fairness, fairness that would help to drive the industry to a higher moral ground. And Craig himself is someone who lives on the maxim, and he built Craig's list on the simple maxim that Craig's list was intended to put food on the table for people who worked at Craig's list, but also to get the table for the food. And that's really the maxim on which the Craig's list was built upon. And, um, Craig's own philosophy is one which continuously asks the question, how can I use my male privilege to advance women's leadership in entrepreneurship, in STEM, in business, and in public leadership? And he sees that as a result of the inequality that women face, that the world loses on diversity of experience, diversity of ingenuity, and diversity of imagination. So he sees that the conspicuous absence of women in leadership, in STEM, in entrepreneurship, and in industry creates a conspicuous loss for the world. So Craig, I'm going to start by asking you, even though I had planned on asking you to share with us your journey in founding Craigslist, I want you to share with us, because I think being at Penn and at Penn Law is a powerful platform with the emerging generation of the next generation of leaders in industry and in public life, a decision that you came to this morning at 3 a.m. <laughs> this is groundbreaking, so hold your breath. He's making some announcements for the first time. Craig Newmark of Craigslist is using us as a platform to make new decisions. Um, this uh, morning I had a certain amount of insomnia and something I've been doing is supporting small small uh, women's STEM programs, typically in high schools, one by one in different places. Um, for example, recently uh, decided to fund one at, uh, in uh, Mississippi. Um, also have been doing similar work in a lot of areas to Girls Who Code. That's the organization run by Reshma Sajani. Um, and that actually serves the entire country also supporting uh, women's coders groups, hacker groups actually, in a couple schools starting as an experiment, for example, Case Tech in Cleveland and the University of San Francisco, uh, not far from, from where I mostly live. But uh, insomnia sometimes means that you just have to get up and uh, get stuff done. So I looked at the incoming queue of uh, grant requests, you know, for Craig Newmark Philanthropies, uh, saw a request for a new place uh, where they're uh, again and another uh, well in a state they're doing a statewide steam symposium not just usual stem but adding the arts and I figured I might as well go ahead and fund that I'm being vague deliberately um, for two reasons first you just don't want to pronounce uh, pre-announce things that always gets you in trouble uh, and second, I still have to pass it through my controller, who is the uh, fearsome and terrifying Mabel. And she is uh, uh, perhaps the uh, most powerful person in Craig Newmark Philanthropies, and conceivably the most powerful person at Craigslist. So, Craig, you said you get up in the morning because insomnia is something you cannot fight, and you get stuff done. So getting stuff done is something that women do best. We get things done. And you yourself, in one of your recent articles said, when women are supported, enabled, and encouraged, and funded, 
they excel. And that according to the Kaufman Foundation report, <clears throat> on average, they show a 35% higher return on investment than firms led by men. This is your evidence-based research. 35% higher return on investment that, than firms led by men. Given that evidence-based research, the numbers of women entrepreneurs who have access to venture capital remains dire. As I said earlier, of the 85 billion uh, invested by venture capital, only 1.9 billion of that go to women-led teams, which means that over 89% of the venture capital go to all men-led teams, and the rest go to mixed teams. So why is that disparity? It is almost a disconnect that seems, uh, seems to slow the tide of economic growth. We know that uh, according to, uh, 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 to McKinsey Global, if women have equal access to capital, equal access to gender equal laws, that the GDP in the world will grow to 28 trillion dollars. It'll grow. There's a growth of 28 trillion dollars. So we are not only talking about, uh, about this in terms of morality, but we are also talking in terms of macroeconomic policy. So tell me why there is this gender gap. Okay. I can't speak for uh, other males. Not, and I don't you know, know why people make the decisions that they do. Um, in Sunday school, Mr. and Mrs. Levin told me that uh, you should treat people like you want to be treated. And as a nerd, uh, an old school nerd, before it was cool, uh, as a nerd I'm very literal, so I figured that makes sense to me. And as a nerd, I didn't absorb a lot of the natural affect of the times, and this is the 50s, it just felt right to treat people uh, equally. So instead of speculating about the uh, psychology of unfairness, I would focus in small ways trying to reverse that, quietly, persistently, and relentlessly reminding people that we're supposed to be about uh, fairness. Fairness is something that we aspire to. You remind people, and then you repeat that for a period. In my case, I think I have 20 or 30 years left. And so the idea is just to keep reminding people that not only do we learn in Sunday school that we're supposed to treat people like we want to be treated, but in uh, high school U.S. history, uh, Mr. Shulsky taught us that our country aspires, hopes, and tries to be about fairness, opportunity, and respect. And the idea is just to keep reminding them of that and just never stop. On top of that, you, well, on top of that, sometimes you just add cash and whatever influence you have. For example, I was just talking about these small and large efforts, uh, particularly to get uh, high school girls interested in STEM and to try to motivate them not only into getting that education, but to stay in their jobs. Even as a kid, I saw that, uh, well, I had a cousin who was valedictorian in junior school, but by the time high school rolled around, apparently she had uh, dumbed down uh, for men. And that seemed very odd and strange. I read 10, 20 years ago, there was a surge of women going into computer sciences, but that surge has subsided. That may be partly affecting, in the long run, the uh, availability of venture capital. So there are things going on that I don't understand. All I can do is practice what I preach about fairness, opportunity, and respect, and to commit to doing that, but only for as long as I live. After that, it's over. But, you know, you are, you're right. You are doing your best, but you've also issued a call to action to other men. You have said, we are not doing enough to help women succeed. And you have created a toolbox that goes beyond funding. You know, you are using, your, uh, uh, your philanthropic arm of Craig Newmark Foundation to fund 
several STEM initiatives, but you're also creating uh, what I call public policies because you, as a leader in the private sector, use your voice in public leadership. And I think yeah. more men in, pri in the private sector can do that. Well, I'd like to think that I have some influence and I don't really know. All I know is that I can start, I can put my money where my mouth is in doing some of these programs. A lot of it is looking ahead, like programs in high schools or sometimes colleges. And with the folks at Women Who Tech, that's Allison Capen out of Washington, we just did the latest Women's Startup Challenge where we gave, well, see, women, women run startups presented typically to panels of uh, VCs, and the ones which presented best with the most practical uh, ideas got uh, cash awards, but more importantly, they got pushed into the active networks run by venture capitalists, because I think money tends to go to the people who the VCs know, so that's a small effort. So on one hand, the idea is just to keep doing real things and doing them publicly and visibly, um, but also something which may matter more in social media to on a daily basis, and I mean that literally on a daily basis, stand up for things that, uh, that matter. This is one big area that matters in a big way. Um, I'm to also towards the final phases of standing up for the teachers who teach STEM in public schools across the country. Without much of a tangent, I support a group called Donors Choose, where anyone can define a classroom project, and then all of us can fund it a few dollars at a time. That supports STEM education for everyone, often providing opportunities um, where people may have educational opportunities where people have never stopped, uh, where people never have had the opportunity to do so. The idea is that in everything I do, I'm finding that what happens, what makes things work, is a combination of quiet diplomacy among people who do have power, and then standing up for things that I believe in, and doing so on a relentless basis. That's ultimately, in a way, a kind of marketing or advertising in the service of fairness, opportunity, and respect. So Craig, you spoke about card diplomacy, and I think that is such a powerful theme for everything that you do in standing up for women and for amplifying women's voices. So while men remain quiet in their diplomacy, you are at the same time amplifying the voices of women as an ally. And you have said, we need to create space for women, and we have to let them say what they want to say without interrupting them or ignoring what they've said. And another way to be an ally is that I will never, ever serve on a panel that is an all-male affair. Well, the big principle in uh Oh, in a lot of conferences right now, and a lot of people are committing to this principle that they won't be on a panel if there are no or, let's say, few women speaking at them. Um, that's, a, uh, that's a big deal. But the idea is, again, to just stand up for people and to do what you can when it comes to uh, situations like that. There's a lot more of these things going on for example, I'm uh, involved with the Global Fund for Women back in San Francisco. There the idea is that they're finding ways, better ways, to push for greater opportunity for, uh, for women. There my role is kind of minor because what I just keep uh, telling people is to get everyone involved with Global Fund for Women, to get involved in social media. There I talk about creating a new normal. The idea is that if everyone expects things to change and acts if things are going to change, in principle, sometimes you do get a new normal. 
the best example of that in the U.S. is that gay marriage is a new normal. How do you make that happen? I'm a nerd. I'm not the person to really ask at times how to manipulate and, or to, to influence people. All I know is to push towards that new normal, to try to practice what I preach, and to keep doing that, and to do that relentlessly, and to just not stop. I made a joke about committing to doing it only as long as I live, uh, then it's over. And that's a joke I stole from Isaac Asimov, but actually that joke is intended seriously. So if there is one um, inspirational statement that can run throughout the uh, throughout this institute, which will be part of the very fabric of this institute and the ta will create a tapestry for this institute is that you often say, if you've been lucky enough, send the elevator down. And that is really the ethos by which you live. And when you talk about the Global Fund for Women, both Chris Jochnik and I work very closely with the Global Fund for Women, which is really global in scope. And what we are talking about, although is, uh, has been so far on what is happening here in the US, what we know is that 104 economies still disallow women from certain jobs. 18 economies call for women to ask for permission from their husbands to engage in economic activities. So tell me, Craig, how you intend to make sure that your voice transcends the borders of the United States. What you're doing, Craig's list is global. And how will your philanthropic initiatives become global? Okay. There's a lot of questions uh, built into that one, so I'm gonna, I may uh, forget them as I unpack it. The principle is, again, uh, also from Mr. and Mrs. Levin in Sunday school, no one enough is enough. No one needs a billion dollars. Uh, and if you're lucky enough and uh, to have somehow uh, done well in business, then I think it's a good thing for people to make good use of their money. Now, giving, away, giving it away is a lot harder than it sounds. The Gates Foundation people, Bezos and so on, are finding that out. That's why they seem to move uh, so slowly. Um, but that's what I'm trying to do. In terms of trying to do this throughout the whole world, I barely know what I'm doing. And that's possibly a good thing because I know American culture and I know a little bit about cultures overseas. But frankly, I don't want to be a jerk and go overseas espousing American values in a lot of places where I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I'm, I learn little by little, but the best thing I can do is to visibly practice what I preach about these things using whatever international mechanisms I have. And as it turns out, my social media followings in uh, Facebook and Twitter, and particularly LinkedIn, I have large followings overseas for reasons I don't really understand, but I figure I got them like a million followers in LinkedIn. So the thing there is that I stand up on a daily basis for stuff that I believe in. And sometimes it does spread across interest areas of mine. Uh, one area related to this halfway is that in the US, women veterans are a larger and larger percentage of the veterans of force in the US. They're not treated very well. Uh, the hospitals often don't know uh, what to do in a lot of cases. And in one case directly related to me, um, a couple went to a Veterans Affairs office and the uh, Veterans Affairs uh, Veterans Service Officer addressed the mail asking him about his service and what he needed but it turns out that the, uh, the woman, his wife, was the veteran. Things like this are changing in ways that actually matter a lot to me. For example, I started working with Tammy Duckworth, who's now a senator, but I started working with her when she was at the Department of Veterans Affairs. I should disclose I spent a year there, I think 2010, as a nerd in residence, and I found out, and this is true throughout government, 
They know how to do things, and they know what to do, but they need air cover and permission from the administration to make things happen. That's the hard part. That's a long story, but I'll stop there. So, you know, you've always said that it's your old-fashioned nerd instincts that drive you to make the world a better place. And so in all celebration of nerds, and many of us here are nerds, and we are unabashed nerds, and that's why we are at Penn, uh, is that you have used that nerd instinct to reimagine the world, and you have often said democracy cannot be built on lies. So your uh, philanthropic <coughs> initiatives are built on three pillars. One is, as you've already mentioned, women in STEM. Second is uh, the, uh, the work that you're doing with veterans. And third is this new work on journalism and protecting democracy from lies. And I think that's an important part. So I want you to speak about that. And as the second part of my question, because this whole institute is based on asking hard questions. And when we talk about women, women are not a monolithic. And you, all, you mentioned uh, uh, the rights, uh, gay rights. You mentioned LGBTQ rights. But I want, you to, I want to press you further. When we talk about uh, that a scarce 7% of investor funding going to women, we are also talking about 0.2% of investor funding going to women of color and black women, 0.2% going to women of color. And that's, that's really not always talked about. We are always talking about 7% you know, of funding go to women, but it's not as if women are a monolithic or homogenous in any way. So I want you to speak to these three pillars and the way you envision the world of women in STEM and women in their many-fold identities? Um, there are a whole bunch of questions in that. Um, and so I'm going to start with the trustworthy journalism theme. Simply that the, uh, one of the other things that Mr. Shulsky in US history in high school taught us is that a trustworthy press is the immune system of democracy. One might say that in 2016, that immune system uh, failed. Part of the reason for that failing was a series of uh, pretty focused disinformation attacks focused on election interference. That's a long story, and a very good article on that appeared in the uh, Times a day or two ago, so I'd uh, refer to that uh, for now. Um, the idea is that what I'm doing is working with groups of uh, people to help reestablish, well, to help figure out and reestablish what do news consumers think of in terms of trustworthy publications. Um, most, in a big way, I work with Sally Lehrman of the Trust Project. They define a set of signals which we're trying to use the, to get the tech platforms to use. Signals which are basically things embedded in articles which say, hey, here's our ethics code. Things like, we're not going to lie to people. Things like having a diversity code. Do you, listen, uh, do you listen to and employ people of all sorts? You know, ethnicities, political beliefs, and so on. And then, do you have a corrections policy? If you make a mistake, and everyone makes mistakes, do you fix them? There's a lot of that going on, but also there's now a number of organizations who are doing really good work at countering disinformation by first figuring out where it arises, say overseas, and then how it's fed to people in different groups who then propagate that disinformation for various purposes, one of which is voter suppression. We'll get back to that in a moment. But the deal is that some of the groups doing that there are the folks like uh, Emily Bell and Jonathan Albright do a great job of that at the Tau Center at the Columbia Journalism School. A couple days ago, the folks at Data and Society, led by Joan Donovan and Dana Boyd, they just did a pretty intense report on how the so-called alt-right commits disinformation operations in the US. Uh, I'm particularly impressed by that operation uh, that is the uh, Data Society one, because 
in publishing this, they've actually put themselves in physical danger. So there's a lot of these good efforts going on, and I can go on for some time about them, and I'll spare you all, all that. But a lot of these information, a lot of these disinformation operations are going on even now, and I worry about them come uh, November 6. Uh, this relates to voters, uh, voter protection and voter suppression without going on in depth. Even in, uh, specifically in Pennsylvania, a representative of a particular party said that part of their election strategy, and this was about five to seven years ago, they would rely on suppressing the rights of people to vote, particularly people of color. They would do things like uh, shutting down voting machines in uh, various districts, or they would uh, just put a few voting machines in such that the lines would be very long and, uh, oh, and discouraging. They also do things like implementing voter ID laws, even though uh, voter fraud is a thing that does not exist. I can go on at length about that one as well, but, uh, uh, but I'll spare you that as well. Now, the, this comes back to the problem, though, Rangita's last problem is, why is there so little money going in for uh, funding for uh, women-run startups and so on? And the answer is the same as before, from my individual point of view. I don't know. I can speculate about all boys' uh, networks. I can speculate just about the, the, way pe the way women are treated frequently. For example, my wife and I are shopping for furniture in Manhattan. We have a new place. We uh, didn't quite realize what long lead times are. So now in a rush, we're doing that. And as I uh, guessed and she's uh, told me, uh, when she goes alone to a store, whether it's uh, men or women uh, salespeople, they will not treat her as well as when I show up. Uh, this is something I really didn't understand until the last 10 years. And I'm uh, 65 and 3 quarters now. I'm a nerd, we think that way. but. Uh, this is uh, kind of something that I don't get because, as a nerd, I don't have normal social affect. I don't know what the deal is. I don't know what to do about it except to do real things, putting my money where my mouth is. To do that, uh, I have a feeling I need to do it increasingly loudly. And I've begun to speculate. See, I, okay, I get loud about a number of things when it has a specific purpose. Otherwise, I fear getting too much attention, and I'm actually guided by the uh, principles in the Beatitudes of not taking credit for good works. And yet, in our culture, the way things work is you write a big check, you get attention, and that validates other stuff that you do. It acts as a force multiplier. So maybe what I need to do is to get uh, loud, or at least relatively loud, about some of these uh, efforts. I don't know, but over the next week, I'll be talking with my uh, communications team about what I should be doing about that. That's complicated by the fact that starting, uh, well, I was gonna say starting next week, I am announcing a number of uh, efforts which are typically uh, led by women, not because I'm looking for efforts to, that are led by women, but it just works out that that's what happens in my life. Um, earlier this week, I think it's this week, I've lost track of time, I'm part of a group called Vets in Tech, and I'm trying to give you the short version. Vets in Tech is run by Catherine Webster. She had the idea uh, that she could get uh, technology groups to run classes that would train vets in cybersecurity jobs. Cybersecurity is a great career path now. We need a lot of people who can do that, and the demand far outstrips the supply. So Catherine started a program, have trained over 100 vets in cybersecurity jobs, and she's placed uh, most of them. 
the announcement we made is that I committed uh, a big chunk of money to start training 300 vets every year and getting them placed in actual really good jobs. And we're doing this regardless of ethnicity, gender, uh, whatever. So it's a small thing, but it illustrates something that people don't talk about. Uh, our country, and any country, needs all the people who, who they can get in STEM, cybersecurity, and other areas. Not getting women into technology is a national security problem, not only for the US, but everywhere. The countries that don't get women into these jobs will be weaker than countries who do get women into STEM jobs, particularly cybersecurity. Uh, there's more things coming, and there's going to be announcements starting next week where I have to be uh, somewhat vague, but uh, in journalism, it would be nice if there were outlets talking about technology and society, which were based on facts and evidence and data science. And in the area of making that happen, there are women who are in the lead running those efforts and, uh, <laughs> and uh, watch the skies on, uh, on uh, Monday, where I'll be in Washington. The thing is that there's other issues. Uh, New York, oddly enough, New York is a news desert, meaning it's pretty hard to find big newspapers and so on, covering the news on the ground in New York City. There are a lot of good local blogs, local news publications, but what we need are a lot of uh, small operations networked together uh, to make that happen. And without saying too much, those efforts are led by women. Not going out of my way to make that happen, just not being a jerk when I go around and look at who's running good efforts. Mm -hmm. Now that I say it that way, basically what I'm telling, when I speak to people, men and women, the message is practice what you preach, treat people like you want to be treated, and again our country is supposed to be about fairness, opportunity, and respect. I do know that we fail in a lot of ways, but well, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I guess a lot of what I'm just doing is trying to make sure bad guys don't try to bend things in the wrong direction and then to keep helping out. So that was just a selection of the announcements that I really want to talk about now, but uh, I have had enough spankings from lawyers and others in my career, uh, starting at IBM, going back uh, 40 years, and after a while you think I'd learn. But, but we can always say that we were in the room when Craig Newmark alluded to some of those announcements <laughs> yes. that he's going to be making. That's but, the correct verb. But, but what we can say loud and clear is that Craig Newmark has said that not having women in tech is a national security problem. I think that is something that all of us who are writers and journalists in this room can write about. So going back to your issue of all boys networks, I think that's an important issue that you touched on. May I? Yes. Um, of course. So just want to be clear, the, our country, and really every country, needs all the smart people they can get into positions like STEM positions, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or whatever. The deal is that uh, the way industry is going, uh, the way national security positions are going, you, we need smart people who can do the job and we really don't care uh, who they are. I've actually seen some of that in operation because like once I took a uh, tour, frankly, of the uh, San Francisco FBI office and I was actually impressed by a vast range of ages and ethnicities there. Something I didn't expect to see, but that was, uh, that was pretty cool. It may be pretty cool in San Francisco, but, uh, <laughs> but, but we don't always see that around the world. And even in San Francisco, Melinda Gates famously recently characterized hiring and investing in technology as white male nerds who've dropped out of Harvard or Stanford. So, 
That's where most of the money goes, to white male nerds who've dropped out of Harvard or Stanford. And that is why the industry reflects that kind of attitude. And that is one of the reasons, that's one of the root causes why the money does not go to women who may have dropped out or remain in other academic institutions. Now you, and this is why I think uh, I'm going back to the very beginning, you had a different trajectory. Your own journey was very different. You did not drop out. You did not drop out of Harvard or Stanford. You are a white male nerd, but we forgive you for that because, Thank you. <laughs> because in every way you embody diversity and what it is to be inclusive in every fiber of your being. And you also try to, try to pierce the veil of the old boys' networks and create you know, women's networks in every way. So can you speak to your own journey, your own life story of founding uh, Craigslist as a nerd, but not somebody who's dropped out of those elite institutions? <laughs> um, there's some things that I don't understand in this context, which pervades the whole timeline. There's this uh, bro thing. And, well, because I'm a... Uh, because I am a nerd of the old school and lack normal social affect, uh, I don't get it. And there's just, maybe it's because like I, I never developed a taste for beer. Uh, and for that matter, I, never, I don't really understand uh, sports ball, as uh, Tina Fey puts it. Uh, and I want her to do more TV if anyone has any connections, because I love 30 Rock. Uh, although maybe the new 30 Rock is the good place uh, which is starting up again in a week, and I highly recommend that. Um, but the deal, okay, uh, early 90s, San Francisco, the web was just starting up as a thing, and I had just started up a simple mailing list, which was mostly events that combined arts and technology themes, and I was trying to circulate in, a, in an attempt at simulating social skills. Um, the old-fashioned nerd stereotype, which I embody, I may be nerd patient zero, is plastic pocket protector, thick black glasses taped together, and no social skills. And I'm not exaggerating, that was me in the 50s. Um, so that's, that's what means being a nerd 50 years before it was cool. And so I just didn't get a lot of this kind of stuff. Uh, and so I, but I just kind of plunged in, knowing I needed to connect with people, not knowing what I was doing, but I had learned how to simulate social skills, kind of. I still wasn't very good at it. And then there were groups including uh, women of the web and so on, who would meet uh, monthly, typically, in some of the uh, new, uh, oh, the new venues opening up, typically, uh, downtown San Francisco, or sometimes, sometimes at the Exploratorium, which was a science museum. So I started connecting. Things started getting kind of real. Uh, there was very little uh, funding around then. This is like 95. And I, don't, I just don't know what happened, but somehow there was already an existing old boys network based on the more traditional computer companies like Sun, the, uh, hmm, the microprocessor companies, the digital electronics companies. And somehow there was an established old boys network in there. And for the most part, uh, probably just for reasons of uh, prejudice, women didn't seem to get into that. And yet people were trying to do what they could. All I knew is that with Craigslist, I started a simple mailing list telling people what I was hearing about going on in the industry. And I should add something I never really remember to say, that one single big influence was the virtual reality special interest group held at the Exploratorium, um, which, you know, a monthly thing. And VR, you know, in 95, this was like 20 years ahead of the time, and the thing fizzled out. but. The group was led by Linda Jacobson, who was pretty influential, and at least uh, 
got me thinking in directions which seemed to offer more uh, fairness. But there I was, I was working at Charles Schwab and Company, who seemed to do a good job of diversity as far as I could tell. I don't really know, and I'm, I'm subject to confirmation bias, just like everyone else is. But I figure I started Craigslist as a simple mailing list. It just kept growing word of mouth. And by the way, I'm trying to give you the short version. Um, Mid-95, I had to use a listserv. That meant I had to give it a name. And since it was still uh, mostly events in San Francisco, as a literal guy, I was going to call it, you know, San Francisco events. People around me who were smarter than me told me that I had created a brand because they were calling it Craigslist. Then they explained to me what a brand is. <laughs> and I'm serious. Remember, I'm an engineer by training. So, uh, but that made sense to me. So it was uh, called Craigslist. Just kept on going. Ran it pretty much by myself for a, a few years and hit some good milestones. Um, even Microsoft Sidewalk, which doesn't exist anymore, offered to pay me for banner ads. And I was thinking I was making enough money doing contract programming at the time. I didn't need any more. And I kind of hate banner ads. Uh, they slow a site down, and they can be really, really dumb. Uh, around then, too, a group of women approached me with the idea of running uh, Craigslist as a volunteer operation. And so I uh, turned things over largely to the group. I still had a big hand in doing things. I was the main uh, coder. Um, but at that point, uh, through that year, that was 98, uh, frankly, things didn't work. Uh, perhaps I didn't uh, exert enough leadership. But at the end of 99, the things that were happening, two things in a way, Bankers and VCs were coming to me, telling me they'd like to throw a lot of money at me to run it as a conventional Silicon Valley company. That's when I remembered no one needs a billion dollars. So I decided that Craigslist would be run uh, as a company that uh, minimally monetized. Now, that is not altruistic. It's not pious or anything like that. It's me just remembering literally what I learned in Sunday school. No one needs a billion dollars. You got to know when enough is enough. And I figured the business model is doing well by doing good. That uh, worked for me. So I started uh, oh, hiring not so well. Um, and through that year, 99, I kept uh, trying to run things kind of well. But uh, towards the end of that year, I realized that as a manager, I suck and uh, made someone else CEO and then went uh, full time into uh, customer service. I stopped coding. I did nothing but uh, customer service. Not coding maybe made me sad. Um, seriously, actually. But uh, customer service was a much greater need, and it is not considered a, a desirable profession by many. I regard it as a high calling, um, but that's what I did intensely for a long time. And the company just kept operating, uh, doing well. Things change, and uh, you know, like one change is that I still do a certain amount of t customer service enough to stay in touch with what's real. So in a dotted line way, in a way unique in American business, I report to Kendra, the new customer service manager. Um, but uh, for the most part, I'm just off on my own, spending a lot of time in the East Coast now, because that's where a lot of our family is, including older parents. And most of my philanthropy, frankly, is based in New York. Uh, some of it's in uh, Boston, a little bit in Washington. But the deal is that, in a way, I got Craigslist started uh, to some extent, but in a diminishing way, helped steer it. Because I had to make the agreement when I turned over management that I was seriously turning over management. You know, there's something called founder syndrome, where somebody starts a company 
and then really sucks at keeping it going. And so I decided I needed to get it out of the way. Um, in a sense, that's the history. I will add that uh, for those of you who are fans of uh, HBO Silicon Valley, that show is realistic in a lot of ways. Uh, it is realistic about the uh, cluelessness of the current generation of uh, bros or bro nerds or whatever it is. It is also very realistic for those of you who are going to go into business in any sort. It is real in terms of some of the uh, pitfalls of not paying attention to your IP, uh, working with VCs and so on. The show uh, exaggerates a bit. It crams a great deal into a relatively short story, but it is pertinent to uh, everything that a lot of people here will do. Um, so you do want to uh, you do want to pay attention to the show. For example, uh, one guy gets uh, gets a deposition taken in a building in Palo Alto, and if I'm not mistaken, it's the same building where I had a deposition taken. Mm. It was fun because I was well prepared. Thank you, Craig. And your the story of the founding of uh, Craigslist and your own journey post-Craigslist reads like a fable for our time, a magical fable about doing well by doing good, with the emphasis on doing good rather than on doing well. So with that, I'm going to open it up for questions. But uh, because we see this as a very interactive institute, we have student discussion leaders, um, Anna, Lauren, um, Emmy, you have questions, and because Kim Grambo unfortunately had a medical emergency, I'm also going to ask Mackenzie, who's done work in this area, if she has a question. But we're going to begin with uh, Anna, Lauren, and Emmy, and your questions. Hi, Craig. Thanks for coming today. Um, so I actually just moved here from the Bay Area where I've been for quite a few years. Um, and I had a question for you. So I think you're absolutely right that we need more women in tech. But what I actually think is a bigger issue is once they get there, um, I'd be curious to know how you think that we can get them the respect that they need. Because um, so in my experience, there actually are a lot of women in tech, but they are in the ancillary positions like, you know, human resources or recruiting, and they're not in those core engineering positions. And the ones that are, um, I hear a lot from my male friends that they don't, unfortunately, accord these women as much respect because they think there's a lower bar for hiring, which is sometimes also true because companies are looking for women. So I think that does a big disservice, though, because, um, if you are a woman and you are a female engineer, you do not want people thinking that you got there just because you're a woman and you want to do well at the company. It's not just about getting in the door. You want to get in the door and then you want to flourish. So I would love to hear how you think that we can, as part of the tech community, um, make it sort of like give women the respect they deserve, basically. Can um, we, shall we take a question from Lauren and uh, Amy too, so that we have all three questions? Lauren? Hi, good morning, Craig. Uh, thank you for being here. So my question is around mentorship. So mentorship is widely recognized as a critical component of career development and advancement and is especially important for women and for people of color. However, I think about three really practical barriers to cultivating and sustaining these relationships. So the first is that from a generational standpoint, millennials are less likely to experience career longevity with one company or only want to climb one vertical or one career ladder. The second is that the desire among mentees to have mentors who look like them and can relate to their experience is challenging since women and people of color are underrepresented in higher ranks. And the third is that the Me Too movement has shed a light on sexual harassment in the workplace, but I think it's also created a lot of anxiety and hesitation among some men to develop close relationships with junior women in fear of something being misconstrued. And that can actually prevent women from having the support that they need in their professional growth. So my question is, what specific actions can a company or a prominent entrepreneur like yourself take 
when they're serious about gender and racial equity in the workplace, what can they do to develop that leadership pipeline for women and people of color? And if you have an example of an organization that's developing a model and is doing that effectively, that would be helpful. Good morning, Craig. Uh, thank, thanks for coming today. I'm from Tokyo, Japan. In my country, um, women's representation in leadership position is still low. So, um, but uh, such gender inequality in workforce is often caused by um, people's stereotypes of gender roles and gender norms. So do you think um, social media can be used as a good tool to um, remove such um, stereotype, stereotypes of gender um, roles? Um, there's a, an immense amount there to unpack. And it has to do with, OK, ultimately, it's a, a kind of social engineering. How do we accelerate this new normal of uh, gender equality and equality in all respects? How do we make this happen uh, faster? And this is a question for uh, the entire world and all cultures involving people of goodwill. It's also a matter of something involving social skills, which, as you may have heard me uh, say, are not my uh, strong suit. So all I know for sure is uh, what I can do. And in doing this, I have to remind people I don't speak for Craigslist, but I do speak for Craig Newmark Philanthropies. So in one phase of things is the, are the efforts where I found people who are doing good work mentoring uh, younger women in high school and then college, promoting that, and then representing that as the beginning of a new normal. Which I should say, a new normal is the idea that this is the way people do things. You know, this is, this is what's good, and this is what's expected of people. Uh, like, presumably, in, uh, in the last thousand years, part of the new normal was that you uh, you know, you wash your hands now and then. It's just expected. So what we're trying to do is create a new normal where, you know, at work, people are treated well just because that's the thing that people do, even though that's not the current reality. So one thing I've been doing is putting my money where my mouth is in those efforts which mentor uh, mostly young women, and that's like Girls Who Code, that's like the two programs I alluded to earlier, which are based uh, based on helping out girls who are in high school. There's also a couple where I'm experimenting, trying to get them, trying to make sure that women who are getting into computer science stay in computer science if they wish to do so. This is all towards building up a pipeline and towards creating a new normal. In terms of current realities. Uh, my deal is to uh, practice what I preach um, and just to be fair to people and in doing so to pick the uh, best people I can when it comes to the virtual team that constitutes uh, Craig Newmark Philanthropies. And I was thinking about it because things change and I, the, num yeah, the numbers do change and I actually forgot what I counted this morning. so. But the people who play the, who form the core of my virtual uh, organization, I've already mentioned the most powerful member, the uh, fearsome Mabel. Um, but also the people I listen to, um, there are three members of my communications and uh, PR team. Um, and then there's some uh, legal help. Legal help, the two people involved, uh, one male, one female. So the idea is that without planning it that way, just trying to be fair, I'm doing it this way, and maybe something I need to do is to uh, ask the participants involved if it's fair for me to talk about it with them publicly. I'm sorry, to talk about them publicly. I don't want to intrude on anyone's privacy, but the idea is, again, to practice what I preach, to put my money where my mouth is, and to proceed on that basis. And frankly, uh, without uh, casting aspersions 
the comms team who's helping me now has proven to be far more effective than uh, uh, one in the past, which was uh, basically two males. Um, this is a big deal for me because five years ago I realized not only how bad I was at comms and PR, and PR does really matter, I realized how bad I was, but also I realized that I had committed uh, sins of uh, omission and that uh, other people were suffering greatly because I uh, didn't overstep my uh, role and speak up, but in a very smart way, 10 years ago. So I think her question was also when women are hired uh, oh. because of because of what might seem. I think, um, I'm sorry, what, um, can you repeat your question? <coughs> yes, yes. I was just asking about how um, women in tech are a lot of times seen as um, having gotten there just by virtue of their gender and so because of that kind of um, inclusion hiring it kind of has a stigma of a woman being less qualified as an engineer. And so I was wondering how you think that we can take steps to change that sort of culture in tech where the male engineers have a female engineer on their team and they think, oh, she got here just because she's a, she's a woman. Yeah. Um, the only thing I know which has worked for me throughout my career beginning at, uh, at uh, IBM is in a way to be a counterexample because IBM was pretty good, and this, this is, goes back to the late 70s, because I'm very, very old. Mm -hmm. um, but IBM was trying really hard back then to uh, be diverse, and that was pretty cool, but uh, that was still difficult. But in a lot of cases, uh, something that seemed to work with some success now and then is that people, including me, would just point out, well, telling women in the stereotypical role, secretary, uh, I would just point out that the job I did, the job where I worked, which was systems engineer, wasn't all that hard, and I should, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I basically tell them that, hey, they could do this, and then pushing them to talk to management, then to get them the training that they needed, and that actually worked once in a while. You see, being a, I was in effect being a little bit of a mentor. Now, being a mentor means having social skills. And uh, I, liked, I prefer to play to my strength, but sometimes you can nudge people and then nudge them some more and not stop in this area and everyone else. And that uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes that can actually work. Um, I uh, don't know how much effect I've really had in this regards uh, doing all of this. All I know is to uh, sometimes you see something, an area where you can nudge and be welcome doing so, because sometimes you can also be a jerk about it. Because you, if you uh, see a person with potential, but if you uh, are pressuring them, that may backfire. But uh, nudging does seem to work. And the idea is to just keep, uh, just keep doing that. I guess one example close at home, uh, and I'm about to skirt trouble by doing this, but uh, um, I'm uh, pretty busy. And yet, like uh, my wife and I have a new uh, home, there's a lot of bookkeeping involved with the uh, co-op, because that's how you do things in New York. Uh, there's a lot of dealing with uh, city inspections and so on. So it is possible that in the recent past, I may have nudged somebody into uh, roles that they were totally unaccustomed to and that they're actually going ahead and doing them, meaning that I don't. The surprise nudge, probably in February of next year, is that why maybe I won't have to be the person to collect all the financial information to send to Earl the CPA. Maybe I could have uh, someone else do that. And I don't know if you'd consider that mentoring, but it will make my life easier. So we can take one more question. Yes. 
Thank you, Craig, for uh, coming here and talking to us. It was uh, fascinating. Um, since we're in the law school, I just wanted to ask a question about the law and how it relates to your vision. Um, for example, eight years ago, you were partying the case of eBay v. Newmark, and you lost that case. The Delaware Court of Chancery held that the purpose of a for-profit corporation is the pursuit of profit. Now, my question is, what are your perspectives on that case? What interesting stories can you tell about it, and how do you look at it today and the holding of the court and how it relates to your vision? Thank you. Um, as we like to say, I am not a lawyer, and also I don't speak for the company, but I'm afraid I have to agree with the uh, judge in the case who said that uh, actually, I think he phrased it, uh, you know, Goliath doesn't win, David leaves unscathed. Uh, like in uh, lots of court cases, we, uh, uh, Craigslist may not have gotten what Craigslist wanted, but uh, Craigslist uh, left unscathed. And if you look at the later case where uh, Craigslist sued eBay, uh, that was settled and Craigslist is now in charge of its own future. The equity that eBay had uh, is no longer with eBay. So uh, again, I'm not a lawyer, but if you just look at the uh, results as reported, yeah, you want to look at the results as that the, uh, like, you want to read what the judge said and the actual results. There was a lot of confusion about the first case because a number of news organizations printed as news the eBay press release. And uh, that's a, uh, a problem in news. Sometimes news organizations print the press releases from companies as if it was news. Thank you, Craig. So I know that the car is about to come for Craig, but I wanted to spend a minute in summing up your whole ethos and the wisdom that you've shared with us. And if it can be summed up in one line, your value system, it is that let's be our women's colleagues' best allies. Yeah, that's again a, well, I keep harping on it, but in our country, we aspire to be about fairness, opportunity, and respect. We should practice what we preach. And a lot of that means putting our money where our mouth is. So even when we don't have the money to to put it where our mouth is, I think we can still be our women colleagues' best allies. Uh, yeah, everyone can participate. The idea is to practice what you preach. And uh, if you see someone being uh, a jerk, uh, that takes a lot. It's a pretty broad spectrum. But sometimes you can do something. Thank you, Craig. And on behalf of Penn Law, on behalf of the University of Pennsylvania, we want to thank you not just for being here with us, but for the service to our nation, to the service to the world, and most of all, the service to women, and the example that you've set for all men to be women's best allies. Thank you, Craig. Thank you.